Reading from the story Grapevine, January 2020, A Winning Game, this author writes about how she made a play to fit her love of football into her new silver life and scored big. This comes to us from Nicole S. from Denver, Colorado. Thank you, Nicole, for taking the time to write in. Here we go. When I came into AA, the only thing I could think about was... How am I ever going to watch football again? How am I going to tailgate? Or what's going to happen on Monday nights when I wanted to be on a patio outside watching the game with my friends and drinking beers? And then there was the Super Bowl. My social life revolved around football. It meant everything. A game for me was a time to drink, to hang, to drink, to be with friends, to drink, to laugh, to drink. Did I mention it was time to drink? I could not imagine a life without football, and I could not imagine football without beer. So when I sat in my first AA meeting, the only thing my mind obsessed over was football. Coming to AA most certainly meant the end of my social life. I had no friends. My game days would be gone. I wasn't really concerned about that fact. It was only July, and football season was months away, or that I was so dehydrated from drinking <clears throat> that my hands were curled up into useless little fists. Or the fact that exactly one day earlier, I relieved myself in my pants at work. My crazy little brain could only focus on the impending doom of a life without football, friends, and fun. Exactly one month to the day after I got sober, a famous stand-up comedian took his own life. It was all over the news. His death shook me to my core. One of the reasons I came to AA was because I had attempted suicide during my blackouts and I was scared of what I might do to myself when I was drunk. I was scared of myself. I had no idea what I was capable of when I was drunk. I had no idea the depths of my self-hatred could go during blackouts or do during blackouts. So this comedian's death hit a little bit too close to home. I got myself to an AA meeting right away. And when it was my turn to share, I talked about this man's death and how it was affecting me. I knew I needed to talk about the things that scared me. And I knew the rooms were a safe place to do so. That day, an old timer locked eyes with me across the room and shared next. He looked straight at me and said, Alcohol wants to get us alone, and then it wants to kill us. He said, alcohol wants to get us alone, and then it wants to kill us. Sometimes in sobriety, someone says something so provocative, so shocking, so profound, it keeps under, it seeps under my skin and makes a little home for itself. That old-timer's comment did this for me. I began to understand this disease in a way I never understood before. It was so simple. Alcohol wants to get me alone. It wanted to kill me. As someone who is prone to isolation and depression, being alone isn't hard to do. It wasn't unrealistic to believe that if I continue drinking, I end up dead by my own hand, just like that comedian. This wasn't some exaggerated, dramatic foreshadowing. It was just the plain truth. 
In that moment, I finally understood that it meant to be powerless. What it meant to be powerless over alcohol. Alcohol was bigger than me. Alcohol was stronger than me. I came into these rooms with my hands curled into close little fists and my pants soil, and yet I was worried about my social life and how I was going to watch the next Super Bowl without cold beer. I had no idea the real game I was playing was much bigger. This was the game for my life. I come to learn in sobriety that I actually like football. I actually like to watch the game, and I don't even need any boost to do it. I love hanging out with my friends. Yes, I have friends who are fun, awesome, sober friends I met in the rooms of AA. We eat snacks and throw chief puffs at the screen when the ref makes a bad call. And I still love tailgating. It turns out that a lot of other sober people love tailgating as well. And I am willing to bet if you ask around, someone in your own ver home group hosts a sober tailgate party during football season. And if they don't, that sounds like a pretty great thing for you to start. I still love sitting on a patio with my good fr friends and watching a good game. Except now I do it with a lot of cold soda instead of beer. Super Bowl Day is still my favorite holiday. Yes, to me it is a holiday. I look forward to it more and more as the years pass by. My life has actually gotten bigger because alcohol isn't in it. I have quality friends now and quality time with my friends. And I am winning the game of life. Thank you, Nicole S. from Denver, Colorado. Beautiful, beautiful, wonderful story. Amen. And that's all I got to say about that. There was something whirling in my head about this thing that brought memory, but that rabbit is long gone over the hill. Okay, let's move on to our next story. This one is called Return to Bourbon Street. For years, New Year's was a drunken blur. Now that she's sober, she can't, she can remember it. New Year's Eve was my favorite holiday to get drunk because everyone around me had the same goal, or so I thought. Every New Year's Eve, I convinced myself that it was completely normal to get drunk. And each year, the next day, I would always make a resolution to drink less and less often. However, every year I drank more and lived with those old feelings of guilt and shame, which only grew throughout the year. I grew up in East Tennessee, and football and drinking went hand in hand. The ultimate goal was seeing our team win the Southern Conference Championship and an automatic bid to the Sugar Bowl, which was held on New Year's Day in New Orleans, Louisiana. What I loved about New Orleans was that you could drink in public. Stories of good friends and family celebrating there for the New Year were always filled with drinking. It was an alcoholic's dream. Walking up and down Bourbon Street with a rum-infused hurricane drink in your hand. My first visit to New Orleans was a recent graduate of my university. Our university team was to set was set to play a team from a neighboring state, which was a member of the Atlantic Coast Conference (ACC). The ACC team wore coats and ties versus our loud and proud approach that included team colors on every piece of clothing, even our shoes. My entire family met in New Orleans to watch our team play in the Superdome on New Year's Day 
in the bar with my family, there were more coach enticed fans than loud and proud fans. And a couple of us started talking to fans from the other team and quickly drank them under the table. In other words, we beat them. My alma mater went on to barely win their game New Year's Day, more reason to celebrate on Bourbon Street. Nearly a decade later, I was in the military station overseas during the first New Year's Day of the 21st century. The Y2K scare filled the air back then, and my military friends were hosting a New Year's Eve dinner. Luckily, the village fireworks at the midnight ended up being the only craziness that night. Our phones and computers still function. The world didn't end. I knew this year would be different since I was having a period where I was drinking normally for a while. I had convinced myself I was not an alcoholic. Almost another decade would pass until my last New Year's Eve before coming into AA. I was now back in the States. It was a typical military party, a bunch of us friends having a big dinner to celebrate. There were so many choices for alcohol because these friends had been overseas. European beer, wine, in addition to champagne for midnight, flowed freely. My husband at that time, who drank just one, even on New Year's Eve, was my designated driver. As we left the party in the wee hours in the morning, I remember being grateful he was willing to drive as I was seeing blurry triple lines on the road again. I thought to myself, this year is going to be different again. I went to AA and got sober in November of 2009. I'm so grateful I got sober in a large city with big family friends, alcohol-free, New Year's Eve celebration called First Night. My first sponsor invited me to join her there with a group of sober women who were planning on walking around the live music venues and capping off the evening by watching the fireworks. Also, just blocks from this event, in the church basement where I attended my first AA meeting, there was a big New Year's Eve alcathon. I had 55 days in recovery. That first sober New Year's Eve, I was surrounded all evening by a plethora of alcohol-free options and, most importantly, many incredible sober women in the fellowship. Today, I have eight years of sobriety. I try to live my sober life in keeping with a statement in the big book. Assuming we are spiritually fit, we can do all sorts of things alcoholics are not supposed to do. For me, being spiritually fit means having a sponsor who takes me through the steps. It means sponsoring other alcoholics in AA. It means I have a home group and a service position and surround myself with sober women who are incredibly dedicated to recovery. God willing, this New Year's Eve will be my last as an active duty member of our armed forces. I'm re retiring next year with nearly 29 years of service. It will also be my last year as a divorced sober woman because I'll be marrying my best friend who was 25 years in recovery. I look forward to my first trip to New Orleans as a member of this fellowship. Walking down Bourbon Street after attending an AA meeting, I know there will always be meetings whenever life takes me, even on New Year's Eve. I know there will always be meetings wherever life takes me, even on New Year's Eve. This is 
DK from St. Louis, Montana. Beautiful, wonderful story of life. An incredible, nice story, huh? All right, our last story is called A Night of Normal Drinking. Just in case he forgets, a member recalls when an evening out was actually like. This is concerning step one. We admit it, we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives have become unmanning, unmanageable. There was no one behind the wheel. This story is sent to us by Simon J. Berwin Heights, M.D. <laughs> there is often talk in recovery of normal drinking. A passage in one of the standard readings in my AA meetings mentioned how no one has figured out how to make a normal drinker out of an alcoholic. I used to think it was easy. I, it got me to thinking, want to be a normal drinker? Sure, here's what I did. I walked into a bar after work with my friends. The bartender had my drink already waiting for me before I said a word. He brings me another one in 15 seconds later, by which time I finished the first one. The bartender then makes doubles. It cuts his work in half for a while, keep them coming. My friends nod in approval and recognition that I am a better drinker than they while I slug down my drinks as they waste their time on chit-chat and sipping. I'm selling that standard here, setting the standard. I'm now sparkling and have the height-weight ratio of a Hollywood star and an endless pile of money. I'm charming and witty and people just can't wait to be with me and hang on my every word. Maybe that guy over there didn't hear me. I'll talk a little louder. Oh, and I smell wonderful. Normal drinkers for me, however, means my spouse at home either gave me a dinner to the dog, put it in the fridge, or just didn't bother making it. I'm having nachos. Normal drinking for me, it's now 2 a.m. And happy hours long over. I said goodbye to all my co-workers, actually, to all my co-workers. Actually, I said goodbye to them within an hour after we got to the bar. Losers, they think happy hour lasts an hour. At 2.25 a.m., the chairs are up, the lights are on, and the employees are waiting for me and one other drunk to finish our drinks so they can all leave. That other guy never takes their cues. I finally arrive home. My spouse really knows how to make me feel like the boss by letting me sleep on the sofa. Boy, that sofa's comfortable. I could sleep there all night long, night after night after night. After a good hour of restful sleep on the couch, I go to the bathroom where everything inside my body leaves my body from every place it can exit. Who knew you could vomit from your tear ducts? The miracles of nature. <laughs> The birds are now chirping really loud. The sunlight is warm and soft and doesn't hurt my eyes at all. Time for the medicine. A quick pop of the cork will stop the silly shaking and, and quell the headache. It's not really a headache. It feels more like a, I took my head off my body, rolled it down several flights of stairs, 
rubbed it in salt, and filled it with a million baby spiders that have hot little knives attached to all eight of their legs. I probably had too many brain cells to begin with. After a night of normal drinking, my pants pockets are jammed with cash, lots of it, way more than I had when I came to the bar. The bank account has even more than I thought. I'll take the day off today. I earned it. Back on the sofa, I bask in the memories of yet another glamorous evening of normal drinking. I regale my spouse with the details of my adventure with the nice policeman who noticed I was mm, tired and protected me while I napped in the car last night. I tell her about how he drove me home and we completely miss our exit. They like it when you forget where you live. Oh, and why are my wrists so red and sore? But wait, what happened to this lamp over here? Who stepped on that shade? Whoa, what the hell happened to the kitchen? And did someone die in the bathroom? My wife is now standing over me. Did she say she called an attorney? When, she, when did she do that? And what's with that box and the suitcases? Is she going somewhere? That's my version of normal drinking. When I drank, I spent every cent, every hour, every thought, and every action on liquor. I expected to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, to have money, a happy spouse, a healthy life, and a healthy liver, a steady heart, rhythm clean, white teeth, and a stylish haircut. As a matter of fact, I expected things to get better the more I drank. Somehow, a miracle would blossom, and I would be great. I sure didn't expect to get out of shape, and I was surprised and perplexed by my stagnant career and crumbling marriage. Who had thought that drinking around the clock would have resulted in this? The truth is, I didn't want to be a normal drinker. I wanted to drink as normally drank, as I normally drank, but with positive results and no negative repercussions. Today, I know I just can't do it. So now, when it comes to normal drinking, I say, no thanks, normal drinking almost kill me. Simon J. for Berwyn Heights. MD from Maryland. Nice state. Won't forget. All right, guys. I left home in 16. Okay, that'll be our last story for today, for right now. Thank you very much. It's beautiful, beautiful, wonderful words of life. God bless you, family. Give them heaven. Let's go ahead and pray out with the third step prayer, please. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, of thy love, of thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Amen. Keep coming back, family. It's working. Grapevine story from January 2020. Let's pray. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change those things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. This story is sent to us by an Elky named Lorraine K. from Brooklyn, New York. Thank you, Lorraine. I sat in the warm bar stool that afternoon full of despair. It was 1985. I was 25 years old, and I wanted to die. 
My plan that morning had been to drink enough to go up to the train tracks and jump in front of a train. But even that, I screwed up by drinking too much and passing out. I came to right before my mother was due home from work. I looked at the clock and panicked, set in. Not having time to shower, I still smell like a stale beer and cigarettes from the night before. I grabbed my hoodie, jeans, and money and left the house. I had no place to go but the bar. As I gulped down my third beer, I reached into my pocket to get a dime for the phone. I sat there staring at the coin, debating whether I had the courage to make that one phone call that might just save me from myself. I ordered a shot of whiskey, staring at the amber-colored liquor in the shot glass. I took a deep breath. I drank the shot and walked over to the phone. Taking my dime, taking my little black book from my wallet, I was anxious I hadn't spoken to Lester in a year. He always had the answer for me. If anyone would be willing to help me now, it would be him. As I dialed his number, I was torn between hoping I could leave a message to him on his machine or hoping he'll answer. But on the third ring, he picked up. This was back when there were no cell phones and no caller ID. I told him I needed help. I don't know where those words came from. He must have heard my voice cracking with emotion. I said I had nowhere to go and didn't know what else to do but to call him. He told me he could help, adding that this was a one-time deal. If I changed my mind, he said, do not call again. I knew he meant it. He told me to call him back on Saturday at noon to let him know whether I was serious and he hung up. It was Wednesday afternoon. I sat at the bar for the rest of the night thinking about what he said. For the next two nights, I went from bar to bar looking for what I would miss if I left. And in one dimly lit smoke-filled bar, the juice box played and the quarters were lined up on the pool table for the next player. Looking around, I couldn't come up with one reason not to quit. And yet, I felt split in two. On one hand, I couldn't stop drinking. On the other hand, I wanted to. No matter how much I drank at the bar that night, I couldn't get drunk. Saturday morning came. I sat on my bed, staring at the clock as it got closer to noon. I was feeling better and had a list of excuses in my head to tell Lester when I called. At noon, I dialed his number, hoping he wouldn't answer. On the first ring, he picked up. Before I could rattle off my excuses, the words, I'm ready, flew out of my mouth flew out of my mouth. He told me to meet him at a mutual friend's house in 20 minutes. I got dressed and walked out of my house. I noticed someone coming down the street on a bicycle. It was a blue 10-speed, and the rider was smiling. I had never seen Lester on a bicycle before. I didn't even know he owned one. He stopped, and I realized it was good to see him. His chestnut-brown eyes were clear. I could see specks of gold in them. Glistening in the sunlight, he had energy about him that I couldn't quite put my finger on. He had something I wanted, and I didn't know what that was exactly, but it made me willing to follow him anywhere. We sat in his friend's living room for two hours just talking. Lester told me he had joined AA. I didn't know anything about AA. 
I had called them once when I was a kid, hoping they could help me with my parents' drinking, <clears throat> but that was it. Lester and I <clears throat> had partied together for years. For him to be sober and happy intrigued me. He told me to commit to taking his suggestions for 90 days. If AA wasn't for me, I could go back to drinking. I agreed. I also agreed to, to meet him the next day at noon to talk again. <clears throat> I went to bars that night to say goodbye to everyone since I was going to change my life. I realized that these were people were drinking buddies, not friends. There wasn't anyone I was going to miss. Whether I stayed or left, they were still going to drink. So I left. That Sunday while we were talking, Lester mentioned that we were going to a meeting that night. I froze with fear. I thought we were going to a meeting tomorrow night, I said. We are going to meetings both nights, he replied. My mind started racing. Two nights? What was I getting myself into? I was planning on a meeting maybe once a week. Then I remember what Lester had said. This was a one-time deal. I looked and said, I should go home and change my shirt if we are going to a meeting. If you need a drink, fine, he replied, but if you don't come back, the deal's off. I was afraid to get a drink because I knew once I started, I couldn't guarantee I would return, so I stayed. Lester then told me a former drinking buddy of ours, Dennis was picking us up. Dennis, who was drank, who we drank with, I asked. He laughed, saying, yes, that Dennis. Later, we walked outside, and our dear friend Dennis pulled up in a sedan. I got in front of the seat. Dennis smiled as he said hello. He looked good, and he had the same gleam in his eyes as Lester had. I was quite quiet until Dennis turned toward me. Are you nervous, he asked. Yes, I responded. Good, he said with a giggle. I didn't think that was funny, but AA had picked my interest since two people I drank with for so long were now sober. We pulled into a parking lot across from a church and walked across the street into the school gymnasium. I could hear the coffee urns percolating and saw the cookies displayed neatly on a folding table. There were chairs set up facing the stage. Lester introduced me to a few people I could barely make eye contact with anyone. I was so scared. Then we walked down a dim-lit hallway lined with green and white linoleum tiles. We entered a room with folding chairs facing the front of the room. There was an old wooden desk and a blackboard. Every few chairs, there was an ashtray. The casement windows were open. I could see the sunset reflecting through the stained glass panels. There were a few young people sitting on the white oak window sills, smoking and laughing. Lester introduced me to them. He directed me to a seat in the second row. He gave me a handful of pamphlets and a big blue book. More people started to enter the room. I pretended to be reading the pamphlets in order to avoid talking to anyone. I looked up when I heard a gavel banging on the desk. Everyone took their seats and got quiet. I was relieved to have someone sit in front of me, which blocked the view between the speaker and me. I folded my arms and slumped down in the chair hiding behind my ballroom attitude. The speaker told his story about when he started drinking, the things that happened to him while drinking, and his life now as 
a sober person. At the break, Lester asked me what I thought about the meeting so far. I didn't have an answer for him. I was uncomfortable. I had not had a drink that entire day, and I didn't know how to feel without one. The meeting started again. The speaker asked me if I wanted to say anything, but I said no. People raised their hands to speak and just wanted to crawl. I just wanted to crawl into the chair. They were saying their names and that they were alcoholics. I felt scared and confused. I couldn't think of myself as an alcoholic yet. At the end of the meeting, someone handed me a list with names and numbers. I shoved it in the back of my pocket and walked out with Lester before Dennis and Lester dropped me off that night. Dennis popped open his glove compartment. I looked down to see a pile of books neatly stacked inside. These are for you, he told me. I took them, and before I got out, Lester looked at me with a smile and said, I will pick you up tomorrow at 7, okay? I had always trusted Lester. He was the one person I could always count on in my life, so I agreed. I took the books in my arms and headed into my house. Lester passed away in 2006 at 54 years old. He knew me better than anyone ever will. He could tell my life story and get it just right. That's how well he knew me. I will always be grateful for him being there for me when I needed him the most. I believe he watches over me now from wherever he's at. The look that Lester had on his face the first day on the bicycle, I knew, I now know that what was. He had something inside of me I was too sick to see. I see it now. It was a look of hope. One of the gifts I received from Lester and Dennis was to know them as drinkers and then to see them sober. I saw for myself that AA did something for them, and I wanted it. If you stay in meetings long enough, you'll get to see miracles happen. People walk in completely broken with no faith that sobriety can work for them. If they keep coming back, you get to witness the change in them. Eventually, you see the change in yourself. My life didn't turn out that way. I planted it. It's so much better than that. How I cope with life today is healthy. For the most part, I am not perfect, just a work in progress. Today, I try to be the best version of the me I can be. For a while, I wanted to do something in memory of Lester. I thought about dedicating a bench in my neighborhood and sitting there whenever I felt like talking to him. Then I thought about planting a tree in a nearby park. I, I could watch it grow. Like he watched me grow. Nothing felt right or enough for what he did for me. I finally decided to write this story for the whole world to know what a gift he was. I hope and pray that if you ever need help, you'll have a person in your life like Lester. Lorraine Kay from Brooklyn, New York. It's funny that uh, I'm Fernando Alcoholic. The story borders on a person named Lester, and I have a uh, a sponsor named Les, L-E-S. And I guess that's his real name, Lester. We used to have a Lester in our work. We used to work in the motor pool division, and we used to call call him Lester the Molester. <laughs> All right, now those little little bit of humor. Our next story is called Reporting for Duty. By the way, that last story was by... The last story we just read, did I give the right credit to? 
Lorraine Kay from Brooklyn, New York. Thank you, Lorraine. Our next story is called Reporting for Duty. He thought his long distinguished service career was over. Turns out he had more giving back to do. In my mid-30s, I had happily married, I was, and had a successful Army career, along with the ability to compartmentalize my life. Though I didn't know it, I also had alcoholism. While I was not on my way to becoming a four-star general, my career was well-grounded. ROTC, airborne and ranger training, a four-year stint in a tank battalion where I commanded a company in Germany and a stateside tour as a public affairs officer in mechanized infantry division. My reputation in Army public affairs was such that I was by name request to serve as a special augmentee during the 1983 Granada operations. In the late 1980s, at the Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe, SHAPE, on the International Public Affairs Staff, I was fluent in French and could speak it on duty. Thanks to the Defense Language Institution in Monterey, California, at SHAPE, I, I was granted a top-secret security clearance, the highest level, and I was able to compound compartmentalized classified information, some of which I can't discuss even today. I'm not sure when my drinking crossed the invisible line into alcoholism, but I do know that I developed a fondness for red wine in Belgium that lasted another decade until I hit bottom. As I entered the second decade of my career, I served as a second-in-command at a tank battalion 15 miles from the wall that separated East and West Germany during the Cold War. I was there when the wall came down and the Warsaw Pact and Soviet Union crumbled. Next, I was named to a training with industry. Assignment with a major advertising agency in Chicago. After I wish, I ran the Army Recruiting Paid Media and Direct Marketing Program. My success continued. I was named as a special recruiting battalion commander and chosen for the Army War College Correspondence Program. But I was drinking very every day after work, driving drunk and drinking more when I got home. Nevertheless, I deluded myself about my drinking. Why not? There were no consequences and I was getting signals that I might make full colonel. When a new general took over and said that he would not abide by the promises of his predecessors, my world changed. Despite my success, I became bitter and resentful. I was becoming more and more reckless in my off-duty conduct. I soon decided it was time to retire. Eventually, several of my subordinates suspected misconduct and they demanded a formal investigation. An army colonel found that my off-duty conduct was not in keeping with the highest traditions of military service, and I was relieved of my duties as a battalion commander two days before the change of command ceremony. This was, as the big book says, crushed by self-imposed crisis we could not postpone or evade. To add insults to injury, my last army evaluation report written by a two-star general I had never even met was mailed to me, closing comments. Lieutenant, 
Colonel, we should never be recalled to active duty, even in the event of a national emergency. <laughs> should never be recalled to active duty. However, I still wasn't finished. I had been lucky enough to find a job with an advertising and public relations firm in Louisville. I continued to drink after work every day. By this time, I had left the marital res residence. My wife and I tried counseling to no avail. I continued therapy. We did make an attempt to reconcile buying a new house for which we had contracted before the end of my career, but that failed. I lived there for only five months. My wife had told me that the one of those days your luck is going to run out, so I brought all my drinking home. By now, she was attending weekly Al-Anon meetings and Anne would leave the old 44 question brochure around the house. When she wasn't around, I sneaked a look, take a test, but fudge on the yes or no questions to make sure I didn't test out as an alcoholic. I never hit my wife, but toward the end, I would become filled with rage and as the big book says, smash treasured crockery. One night, she had enough and called 911. The police came to our home and spent half an hour with us. They walked us off the ledge, telling us both that we both go downtown booking if they had to, to come back. The next day, I left Louisville for a four-day business trip to Washington, D.C. When I returned to my office, two Jefferson County Sheriff duties came and told me that my wife had taken out an emergency protective order and that if I made any contact with her, or one within 500 feet of my home, I'll go to jail for 30 days. Two weeks later at the family court hearing, I was subject to a long list of my bad alcoholic behavior that brought me to tears. The judge admonished me to leave the courtroom with no further contact with my wife and encouraged me to get help. Two days later, my counselor, who I'd still been seeing, connected me with local hospital for treatment. I checked in, checked in that night, but was not willing to stay for a month. I finally agreed to an intensive outpatient program. I did drink twice during those first 10 days, but I had my last drink in November of 1998. During the IOP, I learned about the disease of alcoholism, the brain and nervous system, and the basic of how to stay sober one day at a time. Most importantly, the treatment team introduced me to the big book and encouraged me to get a sponsor and go to AA meetings. After about six weeks of bargaining with myself, I fully conceded to myself that I was an alcoholic and that I needed the rooms and everything that goes with them to stay sober. After I left the IOP, I got a sponsor, did 413 meetings, attending at aftercare at the hospital, and one night, a week for six months. At the hospital, one night, a week for six months. Joined a men's step study group and for eight months lived with another alcoholic who I had met in the IOP. The original reason I quit drinking and sought help was to return to my wife. While the restraining order was still in effect, I did take the risk of letting her know that I was now sober. Eventually, we were able to reduce the tension, lift the order, and resume counseling. As much as I wanted to work, our marriage had become unfixable. While there were issues on both sides, I take full responsibility for the pain I caused her. I accepted a loss of dignity and professional prestige 
that I have come to my life as a result of my drinking. It was a tough pill to swallow to be the son of a career army officer who had seen his own career end in flames and his marriage end. But at least I was sober, meeting new people and establishing roots in my new hometown of Louisville. Despite my recovery, my professional life never healed in those early sober years. I bounced from job to job. Depression set in and took hold for two years. I got help for that and got better, and I didn't drink. In 2004, at the age of 50, I remarried. I blended into a new family with a teenage daughter with new responsibilities. I learned more about myself, the meaning of family, and much more. As I grew in sobriety, I became less saddened by thoughts of, of the end of my Army career. Even though I was honorably discharged with a retirement check, of which my ex-wife gets 40%, I was long embarrassed by what had happened and the black cloud under which I had left the Army. In 2006, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan were raging and the Army's personnel system was stretched. One night, I read about the retired recall program. I showed my wife the article and she encouraged me to go for it. Two months later, I shipped out to the mobilization station of Fort Benning, Georgia, for two weeks before reporting to the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. The officer, who was never to be recalled to active duty, was back in the Army. For a year, I paid my dues working 13-hour shifts some nights, called this a man's, and the Army Operations Center, when an active duty position opened in the front office, I went to my boss and told him I was uniquely qualified and I became a team chief. While at the Pentagon, I attended the Puzzle Palace AA group that met three times a week, along with a men's meeting on Saturday morning. Within three years, I would recall I would become deputy director of my department. I dealt with every major issue faced by the Army. What a journey for someone who had been relieved of his duties just a few years before. In 2017, I retired from full-time work and returned to my beloved Bluesville. Then, as I had done during every major turning point in my sobriety, I went to 90 meetings in 90 days, reestablished contact with my old sponsor there, and was asked to join the board of directors for a local 12-step clubhouse. Continuing service, in 2019, I was invited to join the AA Committee for Cooperation with the Professional Community, where I worked to carry the AA message to the armed forces and veteran communities. I served our country for 34 years, 24 in uniform, and now sobriety has given me the chance to put new meaning into service to our country, my community, and the alcoholic who still suffers. For that, I am eternally grateful. George W. from Lewisville, Kentucky. Wonderful, wonderful story. I'm not a professional reader. I heard professional readers don't miss a beat. They they know the highs and the lows. But I'm getting better. And that's my uh, amends to society for being reckless. One of the stories that comes to mind to me is... Uh, the outer story. I look good on the outside. I'm driving a convertible. It's beautiful. It's a classic. I'm going down the road. Uh, I'm drinking uh, decades-old wines and whiskeys. And, uh, and I, I'm, I'm full of uh, toys. But the problem was the car was stolen, and I had busted into someone's... Uh, 
uh, glass housing that were housing uh, 1,800 old bottles, and I thought that was uh, good stuff, but it was all, the alcohol was gone a long time ago. Needless to say, I um, I got I got hooked up with the uh, civil service in San Diego and started doing some work with military people, and I got to go into bases and inside tanks, and apparently I was drunk in the tank, and um, and we uh, kind of like a joyride in the tank with the uh, sergeant being drunk, me drunk, and. I'm the student, and we had a lot of fun. Thank God no one got hurt. Thank God nobody got busted. And uh, that's part of my story. And it's a, a stench in my military career and the chance to go to uh, Vietnam and do uh, a journalist service in the Vietnam War in the year 2000 through, um, through the church. So I'm excited about what God has in store. And now is to be a good reader and help out the newcomer as they come into AA. Thank you for listening today. May God bless you. I'm rambling. And my first car was a rambler and it did not have reverse. And that's a true story. I was 15 years old and bought a new new car to me. Thank you. Let's go ahead and close out with a serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change those things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Keep coming back. It's working. Grapevine Story, January 2020. One Book's Journey. The making of the book, Our Great Responsibility, a selection of Bill W.'s General Service Conference talk from 1951 to 1970. Julia D., an editor in the AAWS Publishing Department, as well as longtime AA member, spent the better part of the past two years working on the latest AA book, Our Great Responsibility, a selection of Bill W.'s service conference talks from 1951 to 1970. Here is her story of the journey of the book. In the fall of 2016, I started working as a freelance project manager in Our Great Responsibility. At that time, work on the book then called Unity in Action was well underway. The talks were already transcribed and beginning to be organized into a book format. The history and preface chapters were just being written. Upon reading the transcript for the first time, I was struck by how relevant our co-founders' insights were to, to AA today. More on that later, but let's just say it got me more than a little excited to be involved in this project. The first phase of my task was to edit, or for lack of a better term, the talks themselves, and it was a bit of a balancing act. On the one hand, the goal was to stay true to the exact privilege as much as possible, primarily for reasons of accuracy. As you know, we don't change Bill's words, or Dr. Bob's words for that matter, on principle. On the other hand, the prose had to be readable. Bill may have used notes, but he spoke colloquially and sometimes off the cuff, occasionally rambling a little and rarely missing a chance to get a laugh with a good story about an AA member, especially when that member was himself. It was 
exactly this style that made Bill such a great communicator. And we wanted readers to feel they were really hearing Bill himself, that they were practically in the room with him as he told another self-depreciating tale. This was central to our mission with this book. At the same time, you can imagine that such a casual speaking style might present challenges when it's put into print. Just go to an AA speaker meeting and notice how many complete grammatically correct sentences there are in a 20-minute qualification. Well, actually, don't do that. In any event, we approached it with a puzzle, like a puzzle, employing punctuations and absolute minimal editing to untangle bills sometimes, lay be sentences and a fine-tune his phrasing while doing our best to retain the rhythms of Bill's speech, his warm and welcoming tone, and his charismatic voice. Once this aspect of the project was more or less complete, it was time to visit the GSO archives where I got to do some shopping with archives. Director Michelle Mirza and her indulgent staff by this time I had become a full-time employee of AAWS and so was able to pester them daily. It was a real thrill to pour over contact sheets full of slides containing images of the founders, people I heard and read about for years, chatting with each other, drinking coffee, sometimes seemingly unaware of the photographer. Our designer, non-alcoholic Amado Medina, did yeoman's work cleaning cleaning up the images, removing tiny scratches and dust specks, and developing contrast to bring the black and white images to life. Once this ball was rolling, I gave the manuscript to non-alcoholic Spanish editor John de Stefano and to French editor Juliet L. for translation. Then came indexing and translating the index, which all, almost as much work as the book itself followed by proofreading in all three languages. It took the dedication of dozens of people, including our own intrepid production manager, non-alcoholic Ed Nyland, who flew to Wisconsin twice, once during a snowstorm and literally stayed up all night to oversee the printing. The book had become our own great responsibility, as well as all alcoholic and non-alcoholic alike, felt this not one decision was made by a single individual from beginning to end the project consisted of one mini group conscience after another for me personally as an alcoholic in recovery there was much more to working on on our great responsibility first of all these were our co-founders words now i am not someone who veers the founders as God, but I'm absolutely certain that were it not for Bill and Bob, I'd be six feet under, or at best alone in an apartment somewhere, alternating between misery and delusion. I owe my life to this program, and so do millions of others. Tackling this project was not something I could take lightly. I was a little daunting, to be honest. It was. But I had some trepidation at the beginning. It was quickly dispelled by Bill's approachability, that warm tone I spoke of earlier. I felt it, after all. He was speaking to me, too, as a recovering alcoholic. I hadn't expected that. 
And as I delve into the content of the talks, I was amazed of how true Bill's words ring today and how pertinent his insights are for me on a personal level. Throughout the talks, the twin principles of humility and yes, responsibility recur as themes, reminding me of the work I need to do if I am to grow in understanding and effectiveness as a member of Alcoholic Anonymous. First, where am I with humility when it comes to my beliefs? Am I truly open-minded, receptive to alternative views, or do I think I know best? Bill says, simply because we have convictions that work very well for us, it becomes quite easy to assume that we have all of the truth. Whenever this brand of arrogance develops, we are playing God. But in AA, we are supposed to be bound together in the kinship of a universal suffering. Therefore, the full liberty to practice any creed or principle or therapy should be a first consideration. Bill reminds us that the founding of AA itself and the creation of the big book wasn't pretty either. Anybody who thinks that those of us who prepared that book were people running around glowing with inspiration and clothed in white robes is very, very much mistaken. I won't deny that we were very high and enthusiastic and excited, and certainly we must have been somewhat inspired, but in other respects, we acted like hell. He's humble even about AA, saying that in no circumstances should we feel that Alcoholic Anonymous is the know-all and do-all of alcoholism. But while humility is essential to our recovery and our primary purpose, it must be put into action. If we are to carry the message to help the still-suffering alcoholic, which is our responsibility. And where am, am I with that? Am I really going out of my way to extend my hand or doing so only when the Spirit moves me or when it suits me? Bill recounts an, an antidote of a visit from a doctor who's been sending lots of folks to AA, but who found many were coming back. The doctor says that one man came back and reported that he's gone to a few meetings, but it hadn't worked for him. The doctor's response, of course the fellow didn't really try hard enough, but Bill didn't agree and instead commented, maybe this was partly because nobody went out of their way to make friends with him. Loving friendship is a part of the sponsorship. I felt that one, sure. I'll give my phone number when asked and I'll sponsor the enthusiastic woman who hit bottom, willing to go to any lengths. But what about the ones who doesn't seem like she wants it enough? Isn't that just one more of my own preconceived notions? Am I compassionate and loving even where or maybe especially when it doesn't come easily? It would seem to me that responsibility begins where convenience ends. Clearly working on this book struck a few chords with me, and my hope is that you will find the same. A few months ago, I pinned this passage from page 84 of the new book that is to my bulletin board. As we know, all AA progress can be reckoned in terms of just two words, humility and responsibility. Our whole spiritual development can be accurately measured by our degree of adherence to these magnificent standards. Ever-deepening humility accompanied by ever-great 
willingness to accept and to act upon clear-cut obligations. These are truly our touchstones for our growth in the life of the Spirit. They hold us to the very essence of right being and right doing. It is by then that we are enabled to find and to do God's will. Maybe I can let you know in a few months how I'm doing with that. Julia D. from Westfield, New Jersey. All right. Wonderful story of the wit. And I, too, got touched by Bill W.'s talks and listening to him. Lately, I've been saying that Bill says that we're all founders in one of his talks. We are founded of this chair we are founders by doing toss that work when we go to meetings, when we call somebody with fellowship, when we do a friend. We are founders of that very moment, and we're pushing the wake of the alcohol movement forward by being on our game. We're being humble and responsible at the same time. You know, and the other thing that points out that we don't have a corner on alcoholism, so pride won't set in. You know how pride, right away, the human pride, that we got this, nobody else got it. We don't have the corner of alcoholism. We have the corner on uh, delusionment and, and backward thinking and denial because we all came out of it. We're experts in... Uh, a solution is a recovered alcoholic working with a wet alcoholic and they can dissolve dissolve that alcoholic that's what happened to me I was dissolved by my resistance by the AA format and the unity the action that the people were taking the joy and the happiness and the underlining grace and compassion that I picked up from the guys. The way they looked at me, they looked at me that with surrendered compassion, that whatever this program was, they were going to teach me, and I couldn't fail. That's what I saw in their eyes when I first walked into AA. That's the first impression I got. I guess it was break time, and they had a pool table there, and it was a, a, a club, and I walked in with my court card, and I saw all these guys up against the wall. And of course, you come in with, with spit and vinegar and booze inside you, and you look at them, and you're, you're scratched up. You've got blood on you. Your car's all messed up. And you look at the eyes of the guys, see which one you're going to go toe-to-toe and arguing. And I looked in the people's eyes, and everyone was surrendered. And I can tell that they they were repentive of the way they lived, and this is the best they can do with their lives now, is to help and explain this thing to another person, to offer love to that person. That's the impression I got on the first one. So I, I put my two by four down, and I still had the chip in my shoulder, and after a while they, they took the chip off my shoulder and they gave me a chip for my key ring. <laughs> and it actually worked. I was going to drive, and I was still drinking, and I put the key in my, and I looked at the chip, and I said, hey, I can't drive. I just got a DUI two weeks ago, and I totally forgot. Wonders and wonders and wonders. 
Time goes by too fast. A life is spent so quickly, guys. This is truly a miracle to be in the program and accept the program and love it and surrender by being mauled from situation after situation as a kid and then giving thanks for it and be mauled and you're drinking and you're growing up in your teens. Mold means it's one disappointment after another. But giving thanks for those things and letting it go qualifies us to a better world. Resentment not only destroys alcoholic, but it destroys all forms of people and fills up the hospitals full of people. And we don't have the corner on that either. But we do love our corner and we'll protect our corner. Thank you. Reading from the Grapevine, January 2020. Coming to Believe is the name of the articles. This one comes to us from John Kay from Carlton Place, Ontario. Thank you, John. A grateful holiday. Though not the fancy gateways he was used to, the journey this year was to himself. My drinking had gone from being a way to escape life's pressures to a long, slow descent into hell. But the end came quickly, a few weeks after one fateful Christmas. If you saw my life a couple of months before that, it seemed pretty good as long as you didn't look too closely. I was married to a smart, beautiful, funny woman. I had a great job, a nice house in a training neighborhood, and lots of shiny toys. I spent that Christmas on a private island in the Caribbean, and I was being served 20-year-old scotch in crystal tumblers by smiling waitress in white-lined jackets. My life was like a Hollywood set. From a distance, it was impressive, but up close, you could see that it was hollow, nothing more than painted canvas. I was physically exhausted and emotionally and spiritually bankrupt. Financially ruined was not far behind. I had convinced my wife that this trip would be a new beginning. We would escape the mad whirlwind of Christmas back home in Toronto and put our relationship back on track. I swore for the umpteen time that things would be different. But I simply couldn't stop drinking and I hated myself for it. It was killing both of us. The more clearly I saw the pain in her eyes, the more I drank to escape my guilt and shame. The worst part was that the booze had stopped working. All I could think about was killing myself, but I lacked the courage. When we returned home after New Year's Eve, the whole house of cars came tumbling down. By the end of January, my marriage was over. I was living in my car, and my employer was preparing to get rid of me. I crawled into my first AA meeting at what would become my home group, the Beaches Group in Toronto. I was a broken man, 
My God, I thought, this is what it's come to? Alcoholics Anonymous? How desperate can you be? I should have killed myself, I thought. <laughs> I was not an ideal newcomer. I was angry, argumentative, and, despite everything, full of self-centered pride. When I heard people introduce themselves as grateful alcoholic, it was like nails being dragged over a chalkboard. But I had nowhere else to go, so I kept coming back. I kept telling people if I was different. I kept telling people I was different. Finally, someone told me to read the story, Physicians Heal Thyself, in the back of the book. I'm not a doctor, but for the first time, I actually identified with the writer. Those words on the first page of that story, the skid row success fairly jump off the page at me. The phrase cracked my shell of pride just enough to let in the healing sunlight of humility. The earth complete, completed another orbit of the sun. Christmas was a few days once again. I took stock of my life. There was no private island in the Caribbean. This Christmas, I was living in a one-room apartment with a hot plate and a view of a brick wall six feet away, but I had a warm, dry place to sleep and food to eat. I was going through divorce procedures, but thanks to the work I had begun on the step, I was able to accept responsibility for the damage I had done to the relationship. I had serious financial issues to deal with, but I was dealing with them. My employer had decided to give me one more chance and seemed pleased with the results. Best of all, though, I had still had some moments of fear and uncertainty. I also had moments of serenity. Hope had become a very real part of my life. This week before Christmas, my home group holds a candlelit gratitude meeting. It's normally a speaker meeting, but for this one evening, everyone is given a few moments to share. I wonder what I could possibly say. I thought back to the first meeting 11 months before. I realized that the depression I had felt was the greatest gift I had ever received. It was the key to a new life. When it was my turn, I simply said, My name is John, and I'm a grateful alcoholic. And I actually meant it. John K. from Carton Place, Ontario. Beautiful, wonderful, great story I related to. Has it come to this? I said that. I honestly said that when I was in AA for the first time myself. Our next story comes to us from Judy H. from Claremont, California. More than enough. This morning, I was awakened by a dream of embarrassment and fear, and it got me to thinking about self-respect and faith, as well their opposites and what life in the 12 steps had meant for me. Before AA, I had very little personal problem, promise or much hope of ever changing what I thought was an ongoing spiral into what I call bad land. I was convinced that I was inherently worthless. I had so often disappointed my loved ones and myself 
that I felt I wasn't really worth having any kind of loving God. Now I know that isn't true. Eventually, through the program, I was able to rise and shine and get a hold of my self-respect. I can hope, I can now be grateful to a loving God that was what I had was just as a bad dream. Left over from my old life. He thankfully has replaced that with a new vision. It's nice to hold your head up after you haven't for a long time. Today's little things of such a blessings, throwing on fresh clothes, walking out of my door, saying a quick hi to the neighbors, enjoying a cup of coffee, just appreciating the outdoors and fresh air is really more than enough. The relief of not having to reach for a drink to keep the boogeyman away, letting go of the need to be powerful to cover up all my insecurities, it's all priceless. The old way of doing things is finally over. I am so thankful that the God of my understanding has the ball now. My job is to try not to take it back. After 31 years, I think I'm finally getting the hand of things. <laughs> Judy H. from Claremont, California. That's right next to me. Thank you, Judy. I probably know her. Our next story is from PK, Kansas City. Missouri. Any links, call. When sponsoring, it's sometimes hard to tell when to quit or when to keep going as we ask for help. So we ask for help. About two years ago, a newcomer called me and asked me to be her sponsor. She had been attending a group in one of the suburbs and a couple of fellows suggested she call me to sponsor her. I asked her if she were willing to go to any lengths to get and stay sober. Yes, she replied, so I agree. She had a few months of sobriety in a different state with a sponsor there, but she moved north to follow after a man. When that relationship failed, she decided to come back to AA after the man obtained a restraining order against her. We agreed to get together at a new meeting and talk afterwards. She was late in the, to the meeting and was dressed as if she were ready for a night out. In a very short skirt, a tight and revealing top, lots of makeup and jewelry. Since the meeting had already started, we did not get to chat until it was over. When she shared in the meeting, it was totally off topic and of a completely inappropriate sexual nature. After the meeting, we went out to the picnic table to talk. My first suggestion to her was to consider the reaction of some of the male members of the meeting toward her. My second suggestion was that women should stick with women and men with men. She had a car and was living in a woman's halfway house. She called me every day and we met another time that week. Soon I heard from the manager of the halfway house that my sponsee was causing trouble and would have to leave. Then I started hearing from members of the group in the suburb that she was causing problems and the police had been called to a couple of meetings over her behavior. When she spoke on the phone, she explained how it was always someone else's fault. She started going to church and the people there were able to help her a little with her financial problems. She moved into a low-rent motel and, and then to a homeless shelter, then to another low-rent motel, then back to the homeless shelter. Her daughter sent her some money and she moved into an apartment. Her car quit and she had no money to fix it. 
It turned out she had moved across the country with no money, but she kept going to meetings and calling me, her sponsor. I lost track of her for almost a week after she had a major psychotic episode, and the police took her to psychiatric hospital. It started when she thought the clerk at the donut shop had given her the wrong change and somehow ended up with her running down a major street on her birthday suit. <laughs> I thought maybe this was a turning point. The state had stepped in and started to provide her with mental health assistance and was working on stabilizing her with medication. A fellow in her home group followed her to move in with him. A fellow in her home group allowed her to move in with him, and she had a roof over her head. About this time, I was worried that I was not equipped or experienced enough to help this woman. I was ready to suggest she find a different sponsor, as the situation with her was definitely affecting my serenity. When I called Carol, my sponsor, she asked me if I would give up on the sponsee, if she had cancer or any other disease, heck no, I wouldn't. When I looked at this sponsee's mental problems as a disease, I was able to continue working with her. We worked the steps. After writing her fourth step, she sank into a terrible depression. A mental health professional in the program suggested that I not push her to do a fifth. Step in, step in that condition. I took her advice. However, after two months of my sponsee sitting in total darkness, in her apartment and not attending meetings and barely talking to me, I insisted we talk about well, what she had written. We spent an afternoon talking through her fifth step. She was much better when we finished. I am glad to report I had had the intuitive thought that the time was right. She celebrated a year of sobriety and we continued working the steps. She did the eighth and ninth step and even went back to the donut shop to apologize and buy a dozen donuts to take to her AA meeting. A few months ago, she decided to move back down south to be closer to her family. I thought it was a good idea since she was only, since she only had me and her home group. I don't hear from her anymore, but I heard she has a part-time job and an apartment and is doing okay. By the grace of God, she will have two years of sobriety soon, and I have not had a drink either. This program works. It really does. PK from Kansas City, Montana. Thank you very much. Wonderful, beautiful, exciting, compassionate story. That points out that when we write things down and look at them at paper, they eat our lunch, so we got to do the fifth step right away. Talk with somebody. Get it out of your system. I know I experienced that when I wrote down a bunch of nonsense I did as a kid or as a grown-up and irresponsible stuff. Write it down, talk with your sponsor, and just go through the step. It works. It really does. It cleans up the psychological part of our makeups. Amen. Our next story comes to us from Bobby S. from Cincinnati, Ohio. Getting Back, the name of this article. I came into AA in Los Angeles in 1965 to learn how to drink without all those problems. People used to tell me that I was one of a very few newcomers who wanted to come to AA. At my first meeting, I was quite drunk. Everyone seemed to understand. They even held me my cup so for me so I wouldn't spill my coffee. 
At that meeting, they gave me a sponsor, offered to meet me at a meeting near my home, and offered to give me a ride home, which I refused. However, the speaker had told my story. As he talked, it seemed like all the lights inside me went on. I felt like I was home. It was a miracle. I've been sober ever since. Through the years, actions have been in the magic that has kept me going. Not just work with other alcoholics, but prayer, cleaning up at meetings, speaking, leading meetings, and volunteering work with AA Central Office. I also started meetings. Today at 83, I'm able to use my difficult health issues to show others, including sponsees, that we can contribute no matter what. I fell and broke my hip recently. The fall was followed by a bout of double pneumonia. I also developed an allergic reaction to antibiotics, which caused me to fall, resulting in two traumatic brain injuries. Amazed that I survived, my doctor have said that I am to stay home if it's slippery, snowy, cold, rainy. This means that for the first time in my life, I have become somewhat unreliable. Illness has been very difficult for me as I have been a runner for years with lots of ribbons and one trophy. I recently had the goal of running the San Diego Marathon. However, my doctors have told me no more running. Thanks to newer AA members, I continue to sponsor and help when I can. As one girl told me recently, you keep falling down and getting back up, Bobby. It's amazing. In addition to sharing a meeting while praying beforehand to use the three H's, history, help, and humor. When contributing, I also try to be there after meetings when I can, which hasn't been easy, as I can't drive car, a car due to unexpected bouts of unsteadiness. I am writing this to let everyone know that our higher power is there for us always, even when life gives us big challenges. Bobby S. from Cincinnati, Ohio. Thank you, Bobby. A very wonderful story. Thank you for the contribution. Beautiful, wonderful story. In addition to sharing, she says, at meetings while praying beforehand to use the three H's, history, help, and humor. History. Help. Say that you're available. Any humor. Talking about humor, there's an... I've read the... Um, this, the uh, a wits at wits end, all the jokes that people sent in, and out of all the ones I read, out of four or five of them, this one right here is the top. But before we give you the top, we're going to give you the uh, also ran, <laughs> also contributed, also contributed came from Paul C from Oceanside, California, and he says, late entrance, the bartender says. Sorry, we don't serve time travelers here. A time traveler walks into a bar. Ho, 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 get that? You know, it's very hard to get jokes from sober alcoholics, but not that hard. I'm joking. There's another one here called the 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 first one that takes uh, also contributed from John D. Big, Big Lake, Minnesota. He said, a skeleton sits down in a meeting and discloses 
I've been trying some controlled drinking, he says, but I'm really having a hard time holding my liquor. Oh, from John D. But the winner of them all is called Weighty Reminder. Weighty Reminder. This is from Bob M. from Green Valley, Arizona. And he says, after joining AA, I gained quite a bit of weight. A friend of me told me, a friend told me it was because I didn't get as much exercise as I used to. But I never exercised while I was were drinking, I pro protested. Sure you did, Bob. He encountered the exercise program you were on had a number of routines. Hitting the bottle, bending the rules, stretching the truth, running into trouble, jumping to conclusion, stepping on toes, dodging responsibility, pushing your luck, carrying a grudge, throwing fits, and picking up the pieces. <laughs> this is sent to us by Bob M. from Green Valley, Arizona. And I leave you with the best thoughts. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. And getting through tough times is part of our legacy in AA. Let's pray, folks. The Our Father. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Keep coming back, family.